Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Howdy, ladies and gentlemen, members of the AgGrad community. Thank you so much for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter and the founder of AgGrad.com that connects students and young professionals to hiring agribusinesses. If you have listened to every single episode we've put out, first of all, thank you. Second of all, that means this is episode 34 for you. If you're liking our content but haven't listened to some of the early episodes, you're missing out. Some of the first episodes we did, I still go back to as some of my favorites. So check them out on iTunes or whatever podcast player you use, uh, Future of Agriculture podcast. I really thank you all for listening. I realized just this week that actually about 30% of our downloads are coming from outside of the United States. So first of all, thank those of you who are listening elsewhere for, for tuning in. I'm sorry for references I make that may be U.S. specific, such as uh, the Thanksgiving references I made quite often in November. But thank you for tuning in. I've actually yet to hear from any of the listeners that are listening from other countries. So if you would hit me up on Twitter, at Tim Hammerich, I would love to hear your story and, and what has intrigued you about this podcast. But things are going very well. I, I'm pleased with the guests we're able to bring onto the show and the direction that this podcast is heading. There's so many new and interesting and innovative ideas in the agriculture industry. It just really gets me excited about, about the people I get to talk to every day. So thank those of you who listen for allowing me to, to do what I do here. A lot of the discussion in agriculture is centered around the age of the farmer and how do we get young people into the industry who maybe didn't grow up on a farm or aren't from a traditional agriculture background. It's a real problem. I mean, when you look at the facts that we've gone from most of our population being involved in production agriculture now to in the U.S., quickly shrinking to like 1% of our population being in production agriculture. Not only that does that affect how many farmers we have out there, but it also has an effect on how many people with agriculture backgrounds exist out there. There's just fewer of them. If you have less and less people with farms, you have less and less people growing up on farms, going to work in agribusiness or other aspects of agriculture. So the shortage is real. It's a real problem. But the good news is, is there are some things we can do to try to attract talented people from other industries into agriculture. The three connection points that I always talk about are number one, entrepreneurship. There is plenty of interest out there in entrepreneurship and plenty of opportunity for entrepreneurship in agriculture. I think this is a great hooking point to get people in agriculture and, and you're gonna hear more about that today. Our guest today wasn't in agriculture at all until she stumbled upon the real problems that exist and the real entrepreneurial opportunities that exist to get her into the industry. Number two is technology. She's also related to technology, the business that she has, we're gonna talk about here in just a little bit. But technology is, is something that young people enjoy. They grew up with iPads and iPhones and they grew up around technology nonstop. So it's a great sort of link between what we do in agriculture, growing food, fiber, natural resources, and what they're familiar with in technology. And the third is, is food. Everybody eats, everybody has some sort of connection, however loose, to agriculture through food. So if we can really connect with people, especially folks that grew up and live in urban areas through entrepreneurship, technology, and food, I think we can bring them into this industry and they can find 
purposeful, lasting, meaningful careers in the agriculture industry. So food for thought there, and that certainly speaks to our guest today. I have on the podcast Tania Pina, who is the founder and CEO of Renewable. Now, that is spelled R-E-N-U-B-L-E. I thought it was kind of clever. I had to read it a couple times the first time, but kind of clever, Renewable. And she has a business in New York City that converts certified organic food waste into organic fertilizer. The food waste problem is one you've heard talked about before when we had Robert Nathan Allen on the podcast about eating bugs. We talked about black soldier fly larva as a project I've spent some time working on as well. How can we solve the food waste problem? We have all these valuable calories floating around that just are seemingly unusable and we take to the landfill and deposit them. So we've got this stored value in the way of food waste. What can we do with it on a scalable level? And Tania is working on that in with her business, Renewable. So she is in New York City. As I said, not from an agriculture background. We get to talk about really interesting topics to me, such as urban agriculture, ag tech, ag entrepreneurship, and uh, what it's like to be a minority in this industry and what it's like to be a minority trying to raise funds and start a company off the ground. She is extremely articulate, gracious, and uh, very just open to to conversations that I think are extremely valuable to have. So it's a pleasure to have her on the podcast. Please enjoy this interview with Tania Pina, CEO and founder of Renewable in New York City. Tania Pina, of CEO and founder of Renewable on the podcast today. Tania, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, anytime, Tim. Thanks for having me. This has just been fantastic timing uh, on your part. As I told you a little bit last night, I, I had another cancellation and the fact that you came on the radar just in time, it was very uh, serendipitous. So I'm very, very happy to talk to you today. Likewise. If you could just start off by talking about your journey into the industry of agriculture, it's different from a lot of folks story. Yeah, sure. You know, it, mine was very unconventional in the way in the fact that I went to Virginia Tech, graduated with a bachelor's in business information technology. So there's no part of my background formally with any technical training besides figuring things out on the go and a lot of self-directed learning that would touch on agriculture, biology, or just food science or food technology. So what, what happened was in, in 2006, I graduated with the the bachelors, I went into financial services working for Ernst and Young and, and advising a lot of the at the time was bold bracket investment management firm. So Goldman Sachs, we were on the Lehman Brothers account. And during that time, I liked more of what our clients were doing rather than what I was doing. So that kind of transitioned my segue into the more finance uh in, in investment management. And during that time, you know, I, I committed my free time to a lot of pro bono work. Uh, some of the some of the volunteer work was aligned with community groups and and inner city urban farms with Brooklyn Farms and a number of farms in South Bronx. And then I did a lot of education and and curriculum development for a number of different age groups. But what really was the pivotal or impetus behind Renewable was in 2011, I was a prep essay teacher in Harlem at a school called Thurgood Marshall. And this was a as a team leader for New York Cares, which is a prominent volunteer group in the city. And what really started it was on every Saturday, we would have 
classes from 8 a.m. until roughly about 1 or 2 a.m. And these kids within a two block radius, you know, they were bringing to class Dunkin' Donuts or whatever processed food was locally accessible. And I just would see them, you know, I'd ha- they'd be alert. I'd have their attention up until noon and then they start to drop off. And so if you look at how systemically that impacts, you know, future kids generations or future generations of our kids, you know, the, the lack of nutrition and fresh available options really impacts or dictates what type of future they're going to have. So that nutrition impacted their productivity and how alert and, and their level of retention they were having in that prep SAT class. And then, you know, it, it greatly impacts the type of jobs they could, or careers they could have in the future. And so at the time, New York City was spending $33 million to export waste to other states and sometimes to China and divert the, not divert, but to export their waste to landfills. And I just felt there was a, a big opportunity given the macroeconomic trends of where, you know, global populations were migrating towards. They were migrating towards urban cities or urban centers. 70% of that by 2050 is actually, in fact, is supposed to be having that type of growth. And, you know, if, if there was an opportunity to reclaim a lot of the nutrients in these urban centers and help localize or increase the amount of production and distribution of the food produced nearby these cities, there was, that's definitely an opportunity I want to be a part of. And it aligned with just a lot of personal values for myself as well. Which came first there, the the discovery of the nutrition for the children or seeing the big problem of the food waste? That's a great question. I haven't been asked in the past yet, but it was the it was the discovery or just observation of the lack of nutrition. And so I'm I like to read. I love to read, and I'm a big advocate for people trying to connect the dots of you know current day events as well as trends. And and because so many things are changing so quickly, you know, it was more of really luck and timing of trying to to associate what I felt was going on and where the need would be uh, greatest, as well as really seeing firsthand, you know, these kids aren't bringing fresh food or fresh fruit for that matter for breakfast. They're bringing Dunkin' Donuts. What what would you have thought if before that time somebody had approached you and said, hey, how about a career in agriculture? You know, I've always, I've always, we've always had like a garden at home and I've, I've always liked the personal connection and there's a, there's a gratification with growing herbs, even from a a potted container in my apartment, there's something there that you can't tangibly replicate with anything else, right? Maybe not ceramics or any other type of craft at home because you reap the benefit by actually eating it and like the way Mm -hmm. it tastes. But, you know, I, I wouldn't have been, there wouldn't have been a version to it. I just, it would have taken me a long time to perhaps go in that direction than it would have had I had this journey. Yeah, I think that's you hit on a couple important points there. A lot of times in agriculture, we talk about, well, how do we get people from urban areas out to the farm because the farm's so distant from them? In reality, I think the solution to that's quite simple. You you bring the farm to them, right? You you bring the farming to them. And even on the smallest scale of getting to see one plant grow, harvest, and you get to consume it, you you really start connecting the dots a lot better. So I think that that aspect is uh, certainly speaks to your background and I think is fascinating. Your business converts organic food waste into organic fertilizer. How do you find your organic fertile, uh, food waste and, and how can you make sure that it is indeed certified organic? Yeah, great question. So we work with wholesale produce distributors that have a, an abundance of 
produce waste that, you know, they also supply conventionally grown produce and they also supply organic certified produce from their farms or their suppliers. So it's a matter of having a conversation and quality control and compliance and understanding what their operational controls are with taking in that food stream, how that their products, which sometimes end up being uh, value added, let's say prepped vegetables and fruit that have been cut and, and repackaged for their end consumers or some of their their bulk wholesale volumes, understanding where along their production line it, it's considered a food waste. I shouldn't say waste, but let's say a scrap or or upcycled material. And where does it you know, the points of which it remains idle. And so really working with them closely to to capture it as soon as possible, because the longer the the waste or the the food becomes a waste characterization, the quick the 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 quicker it takes for the nutrients to become less harvestable, and so it's just working very closely to identify at what point is it considered scrappable, the amount of time that it is can it is going to be held idle, and how soon we can come and reclaim it that doesn't create a disruption to their their service. And is currently your, your supply chain and processing all happening within the New York City area? Yes. So, you know, we we definitely operate on a small batch. We're still fairly small in our team and our operations. But, I, you know, the goal is to pretty much distribute this manufacturing model in four other key areas in the United States and then working with a wholesale produce distributor partner that can scale with us. Great. And I imagine uh, knowing an, a little bit about the food waste problem, there's probably more available product for you than than you could possibly convert into fertilizer. Is that true? Or is there a shortage of this organic food waste? No, you're absolutely right. You know, um, unfortunately, at, at this point, at least, we're, we're not really significantly moving the needle on diverting the, the produce waste. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is because we have to be really diligent of making sure that it's organic certified. So we're dealing with selective waste stream or waste type. We can only take in produce waste. Uh, and the reason for that is, and produce meaning the same thing as vegetative waste. The reason for that is, is with hydroponics, at least, which is our application for our products, it's very susceptible to bacteria that can completely compromise a indoor growing system. Hmm. And so dealing with animal byproducts, dairy, it, it just causes a number of challenges that we tested. You know, we spent three years testing different waste types and different blends. And so, and, you know, on, on top of that, some of our consumers really want to keep it as plant-based as possible. We, there was some aversion to having any any animal byproducts in it. So yeah, yeah. I hope that answered your question. It, it does. Absolutely. And you mentioned your consumers. Who are your tar- target customers for this product that you make? Sure. So we sell to both individual consumers, so B2C as well as B2B. And the B2B typically is for your small to medium-sized scale farms that sell to supermarkets, farmers markets, restaurants, all direct sales. And am I correct that because you use all certified organic inputs, you're allowed to market your product as okay for certified organic farms? Is that right? This is true. However, the product isn't yet OMRI certified. So OMRI certification typically takes five to six months um, and you may be more privy to it than even myself, but the the certification is not only evaluating the product contents, but also the manufacturing process. So it's something that we're undergoing, but we don't have that labeling on our products yet. Okay. Yeah. Let's switch gears just a little bit here. I'd like to hear about your 
journey from going from a full-time employee with a successful career. I mean, uh, you mentioned Ernst & Young, which is extremely great career track, to eventually deciding that this is what you wanted to do full-time. What was that decision like? Sure. It was kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person, meaning I, I kind of take you know, signs that, that are given to me and, and definitely follow along with it in terms of my passion, where I feel like my purpose is in life. But then also I felt, you know, food is one always going to be one of those things that it's not a trend. It's not a quick money monetizer, but it's always going to be a problem or a challenge that we're going to have to deal with for several generations. And so when I was transitioning from financial services, then to investment management, and then finally embarking on, you know, doing this full time. And and for the first, so Renewable was incorporated December 2011. I moonlighted with a couple of full-time jobs for the first, let's say, two years, and then finally did full-time head-on when we raised a small amount of pre-seed funding from an accelerator in New York called FoodX, which they incubate food and agricultural startups. And so, you know, that whole transition was led by me having this kind of intuition about going into sustainability and it just really fit into a number of values that I felt I resonated with as an individual working in financial services, which was I'm wasting food. I could put it in my freezer and bring it to Union Square so that their compost drives, you know, that operates once a week could collect it for me or I could bring it to them to collect. But Really, my freezer is only but so big, so I, it's still bothering me. There's still a personal itch with this the amount of food waste and not being able to do something more productive with it. But then also, you know, I felt like on the larger, and this is going to the point of being aware of where the world is shifting and, and the trends that are going along with it, you know, I felt that there was an urgency of how to increase food security and, and food nutrition. So the vision has always been, Tim, where you know, how can we take this manufacturing model and replicate it in some of the most, the dire areas, the, de- the developing markets or developed countries where they can use, there's an abundance of food waste, let's say in, in, in Northern Africa, Nigeria specifically, and I should say especially, and right now they're landfilling it, or right now they're considering, um, goodness, there's a the process of, of burning it, but you know, there, there, there is an ability, and I've always been committed to the idea of taking that localized waste stream, reclaiming as much of the nutrients as possible, and turning it into something that can be harvested back into their food production systems. And the vision has always been, we're not there yet, but the bi- vision has always been how can we use as much of the food waste as possible so that we're not relying on additives or supplements that may be outside of that local ecosystem? For sure. Yeah, I've actually done a fair, fair amount of uh, research myself as well into the food food waste problem. And it's one that's not going away anytime soon. In fact, as countries become more and more developed, they have a larger and larger food waste problem. And just all those wasted calories, it, it becomes an issue of uh, the point in which the food is wasted, the logistics of getting it to where it needs to go. And then, as you said, the, the, the issues such as bacteria, of course, the economic issues, you have to turn it into a product that's actually can stand on its own economically. And so it's, it's very complicated. And I, I admire the work you're doing to, to try to solve, you know, such a complicated issue. I, I'm really intrigued, you being in New York and you mentioned Food X. I know nothing about the New York urban ag slash ag tech scene. Can you just fill us in a little bit on what that's like? 
Sure. Um, there's a number of operators, some of which, you know, are are basically growing out of retrofitted shipping containers. So you may have heard of a couple of brands such as Freight Farms or Crop Box. There's one even called Grotainer, where they're taking these retrofitted shipping containers, insulating them, putting a cooling unit and an air conditioning, uh, air circulation unit, so that you can have year-round food production. Granted, the 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 amount of production per square foot is obviously a lot lower than some other types of setups, but the point is is that it's year-round, pesticide-free, local harvest that these operators are selling direct to restaurants, schools, and some, let's say, more local, smaller supermarkets. And so what There's a number of challenges and there's a number of opportunities. The opportunities is that local purveyors definitely have caught on to the local first, you know, as natural or organically um, harvested or produced product as as possible. But, you know, some obviously value that more than others. And then, you know, even more so trying to support this ecosystem of of just food entrepreneurs as the, the broader sense. But then the, you know, and that's gotten a lot of traction. So you have some operators at Square Roots, uh, they just incubated, I think, 10, or they are incubating 10 or 12 food entrepreneurs out of their line of shipping containers out in Brooklyn, New York, out of the old Pfizer building. And the, their whole impetus or whole mission is to show that you can scale these shipping container unit production groups in in a way in inner city so that food can be done in a in an economically viable way right produced in cities and so they want to be able to prove that model first in new york and then be able to scale that in other cities around the us the challenge is is One is real estate costs. Real estate is extremely prohibitive. Uh, Manufacturing in the city has has had an uptick recently. And so old warehouses for the more industrial scale vertical farms, you know, it's it's really challenging to find a, a very decent square foot, dollar per square foot rate that, you know, a, a farm can scale with because, you know, your initial traction may be suitable for the first year of, of rent, but a lot of these leases are going for five to 10 year commitments. And I have found, you know, between our relationships in DC and New York, that it's really challenging for farmers or operators to show that they can have those initial commitments from the, the you know, their first startup days. And I'm saying commitments from either supermarkets or smaller, let's say, uh, customers. And so not only real estate, but also the energy. The, the 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 energy consumption, I think there's a lot of data that still needs to be proven and, and shown more consistently, but it is requiring more energy than obviously uh, soil grown produce. So, you know, the 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 values is right on trend with some of these entrepreneurs, but they're they're it's gonna take some time to work through those first two challenges. Right. No, I think those are very good points. And I actually, I was talking to somebody the other day, obviously New York City is, is going to have some of the most expensive real estate in the world, but even places like Colorado with the legalization of marijuana, they are having trouble affording warehouse space for indoor agriculture uh, for other crops because, right. because there's so much money in doing that. So kind of interesting challenges and certainly the energy challenge is one I think we're going to keep making step towards more renewable energy just in general, which will help indoor growing. But certainly a challenge as well. For you, how did you get your first customer? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So we did start off, and I find most 
startups are going through the first discovery days through a crowdfunding campaign. And that really, you know, is only for $10,000, a very nominal amount just to market test and see if what we're doing, given the challenges of trying to create this product, it really resonates with enough people to pursue this. And so we raised the $10,000 and though that set became our or a set of, of supporters became our early adopters. And then from there, we try to grow our organic growth through referrals and uh, just having as many conversations as possible. And so some of our like direct outreach strategy would be, you know, really being in tune with any farms that were operating throughout the U.S. and then doing a, a cold direct email outreach to some of these farms just to just have a conversation, a very brief conversation about what we're doing. Is it something that you've always considered? Is it something that you would test? Why and at what price point? And, you know, what are making you, what's making you currently use a general hydroponics or a Botanicare? And if you knew that was there was a, an alternative that completely showed the transparency of all of these organic certified ingredients, and we could show you, in fact, that they were true to, you know, their label, because I think that's a big thing in the industry is fertilizers. There's a lot of haze. And, you know, I, 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 it took me a while for me to understand why so many people distrust because of the snake oil that goes on in the fertilizer industry or what's being postured as that. But, you know, I think transparency really wins and ethics really win, trumps everything else. So to your question, I feel like I'm going on a tangent, but to your question, it was just a lot of just having engagement and conversation, speaking with retailers, understanding what their the customers or the retailers were buying, why they were buying it, and then just thoroughly understanding how our positioning is different from our competitors. With that transparency, do you ever have a concern that sort of the secret sauce will get out and it will spur new competitors? Yeah, it, you know, it's always something that is in the back of my mind. I, I don't I don't worry about competition. If anything, I just try to always, you know, be transparent first. And so we'll never go out and say exactly to what percentage and to what, you know, ounce we are putting of each of our ingredients. But we do try to say you know, we do, we do say, and I try to say, we do say that, you know, these are, this is what is at least contained in the bottle. Yes, you know, re-engineering or reverse engineering is, is, can be done in the fertilizer industry, but knowing exactly which, to what degree the entire composition is, we won't say, because that's really our only line of protection besides our IP on the process. Right. And, and IP being intellectual property, do you have a patent on, on the products? Yes, it is. It is currently patent pending on the on the products and the process. Very cool. I'm just I, I'm I'm blown away by your story of going from, a, you know, very minimal ag background to, you know, a, a, a real business in, in this space and, and really just uh, coming on five years now. I think it's really interesting. You wrote an, an article for TechCrunch, which is, you know, it's probably not an easy place to get an article published, I wouldn't imagine, but called The New American Dream, My Life as a Minority Startup Owner. Can you give everyone just a little bit of a gist of that article? Yeah, I mean, thanks for thanks for highlighting that. You know, the, the reason why I published that and and I had a help from an, a number of different uh, colleagues, uh, just understanding what they were going through and Mala Kumar specifically on some of the statistics. But I wanted to see, you know, are people experiencing the same thing? So me as a minority, young female, especially in an industry that was foreign to me. But, you know, I, I should know I had we had a number of people either formally on our team and currently on our advisory team that 
definitely got renewable to the the place that it is today. And I have tremendous appreciation every day for those individuals. So it wasn't just me self-directed learning. It was also being uh, around people smarter than myself. But going back to the question, you know, I, I, I published that because you know, it's extremely hard to bootstrap a manufacturing company. And it is even more interesting like, to do it while being a minority because I, I kid you not, I'll have conversations where it's just a first handshake and people, some individuals will ask, you know, what is my role in the company? And they're already assuming some people verbally say before I can even tell them what I do. Oh, you're, you're in the marketing, right? And I'm, I'm just taking them back because the fact that they presume that. Hmm. And when I say, you know, no, I actually, I actually started the company. Like I, I'm currently the CEO and this is how we came about. And it it just shocks them. And so, you know, I the takeaways from that is I hope that people really just kind of think outside of the box. You should never generalize, you know, and put add, allow your presumptions to define someone. But also raising capital with these two type of, of descriptors, it is challenging. You know, agriculture is not as sexy. It is becoming more sexy, but it's not as sexy as your software widget or B2B enterprise software play. So it takes an even longer amount of time to, to raise funding. And for us, you know, there's not a software component that is part of our product or part of our offering. So, you know, it's, 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 it's our vertical, it's the minority aspect, but I will never say that because I'm a female minority, that's why I'm not here today. Right. Like I never right. allow that to be the excuses for where I'm not at. I, you know, there are other reasons for that, but it does make it more, it does make it more interesting. <laughs> yeah, it, and I don't think it should be an off-limits topic. I think it, sh- it should be something that should be talked about. And I, I want to uh, congratulate you you for, for the article and for opening the dialogue about that. Do you feel like, I know you mentioned, you know, ag not being as sexy to, to people who are investing in tech, and I get that. It, is there any special disadvantage within the ag industry uh, to being a minority that you've noticed? That's a good question. You know, I've noticed in certain regions. So I'm originally from Woodbridge, Virginia. Still, I would say part of the Northern Virginia area. Went to school in Virginia Tech. Very big ag school. You know, I think just like the golf industry, it's still very much a a kind of like a a boys club, right? And so having that initial, you know, um, introduction or initial just kind of like entryway to, to get the first meeting did make it, you know, it's it's a who you know uh, rather than, you know, rather than maybe my success rate in in other types of industries that I've worked in, and so I, I've noticed that less, you know, with every year that passes, they're like you're you're doing a great job today, and that's getting more younger voices and your and younger mindsets in agriculture because um, there's definitely a need for them, right? Just generationally, but you know, there is there is some. Um, pushback, well, not pushback, maybe a little bit more resistance in areas that I have no familiarity to. So if I if I try to really do outreach or direct sales business development in Georgia, and my contacts are very few and far between in Georgia, that's what I'm contending with. Right. You don't feel part of the club quite yeah. yet. Absolutely. What can we do? What are the messages you think will resonate with other young people that are not in the ag industry and never considered it, what would you tell them about agriculture that might pique their interest? 
I appreciate you asking. You know, one thing that, we, that we've been, and I say we, so I'm a part of this collective called the New York City Ag Collective. And it's comprised of not only suppliers, but operators and anyone that provides a product or service in the agriculture space, agnostic of, let's say, growing medium and, and agnostic of, what, of whether it's nonprofit or for-profit. And I think just having more people being inclusive of the conversation. So, you know, we're trying to touch the kids in these communities. We're trying to touch the parents in these communities and really show that impact of, you know, your food's being grown here, your kids are are harvesting it, and now you're eating it. So if you can kind of connect the relationships and the experiences for everyone that is in that direct vicinity, then it's not only a conversation of, let's say, a, a career opportunity, but it's also touching on very big things, STEM and how to make sure that jobs that are being taken away due to robotics and automation, you know, there's not that disenfranchisement. There's there's an actual opportunity here that could be introduced by agriculture, but you really need to be involved in it today before it adapts even further. And so that's what I would really advocate is getting everyone, even outside of those that are touching the plant directly, to just be a part of this movement so that there, it's not just a matter of being more directly connected to what they're eating, but also, you know, hopefully it's a job opportunity or some type of education that they can be a part of in the future. Fantastic. Tania, I think, thank you so much for taking the time here today. This is just a truly fascinating story. And I think uh, everyone listening is going to get a new perspective on some of the exciting things going on in agriculture in New York City. You know, for a lot of people, that's not the first place you think of uh, when you think of agriculture. Anything that I missed that we didn't get to touch on today that you'd like to add to the conversation? No, I, you know, I appreciate you asking, Tim. One thing for 2017 that I'm going to be trying to do is connecting more conversations with other operators in other cities. And I say ag- agriculture operators. So we'd like to be able to understand what are the dynamics in Detroit, the dynamics in, in Tampa, Florida, and the same for San Francisco, so that are, are they really competing with, you know, the same challenges that New York City agriculturalists are, are competing with or encountering? And um, I hope to be able to relay that, whether it takes in the format of a podcast or a longer blog format, but I'll keep you posted on that. That's great. And how can people connect with you if they're interested in that or, or any of uh, the material we covered today? Sure. Yeah, the best way is by email. And I do check this email very actively. I check it every day. So the best email would be info at the company name Renewable, R-E-N-U-B as in boy, L-E.com. Great. And that is R-E-N-U-B-L-E.com. Yes. Yep. Tania, thank you again very much. I'm excited to to share this with, with the rest of the audience, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you. Anytime, Tim. Take care. How awesome is that? I just really enjoyed that conversation with Tania about entrepreneurship, about new ideas, urban agriculture. And I truly believe if we're going to get people interested in agricultural careers or even just as basic as where their food comes from, we're not going to get them to travel hundreds of miles to our farms just because we need to bring the agriculture to them. 
And those connection points I talked to at the beginning of the show of entrepreneurship, technology, and food are great connection points of let's bring that to them in urban centers or wherever they may be. I think that's just extremely exciting. And I think there are a lot of opportunities to do that on on a large scalable level. And um, if we can get people, more people like Tania into this industry, it will all be very, very much worthwhile. Are you somebody who's not from an agriculture background, but is interested enough in this industry to listen to this podcast? I'd like to hear from you. Twitter is just a great place for open dialogue, open conversation where you and I can connect one-on-one, but we can also be part of a broader conversation. So I'd really love it if you would reach out to me on Twitter at Tim Hammerich, T-I-M-H-A-M-M-E-R-I-C-H. I want to hear from you, especially if you're somebody not from an ag background, but interested in this industry. Let's chat and let's keep the dialogue open on Twitter for others to join in the conversation as well. Thank you so much for listening. Happy New Year. And I'm super excited to continue to bring great guests like this repeatedly every week in 2017. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit aggrad.com. That's A-G. GRAD.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.